Thank you for listening to the Kol Hadash podcast. In this episode, we continue with the 2016 High Holidays with a recording of the Yom Kippur evening service. If the traditional days of awe, inscribing and sealing of one's fate in the world to come, who shall live and who shall die, who by fire, who by water, as made famous by Leonard Cohen, isn't our belief, then we assert that we believe in life before death. Rabbi Shalom discusses why we need to make the most of this life, in this world, with these hands and you. Which life matters? The promise of an afterlife is a powerful thing. People can do just about anything for a chance at eternity. No material comfort? Done. No sex? Done. Disengaged from the world into a self-imposed ghetto of language and religious practice? Done and done. Avoid certain foods? Done. Persecute heretics? Done. Kill unbelievers? Done. Submit to centuries of persecution, suffering, and martyrdom? Done, done, and done. Think of the appalling cruelty of the caste system convincing those at the bottom of the social ladder they deserve to be there because of sins in a past life. And the only way to improve their prospects in the next life is to humbly accept their lot and not rock the boat. If it can save your place in a world to come, earn you a spot in heaven, guarantee cosmic reward and permanent bliss, people will do strange and terrible things to themselves and each other. They can ruin this life in pursuit of the next. Now, some who believe in an afterlife are deeply engaged in this world and for good works here and now. Christopher Hitchens' famous line, religion poisons everything, demonstrates a very thin knowledge of the range of religious lives. We need a sophisticated approach to religion that accounts for inquisition and jihad and for Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., and the large majority of religious believers who love their neighbors and do not persecute them. We saw on Rosh Hashanah that rabbinic emphasis on a world to come did not preclude attention to this one. Even if the daily Amidah prayer thanks God in advance for someday resurrecting the dead, that same rabbinic literature also proclaimed, whoever destroys a soul, it is as if he destroyed an entire world And whoever saves a life, it is as if he saved an entire world. These are lives destroyed or saved in this world, not in the next. Based on what we can know about the world and ourselves, this is very likely the only life that we get. The end of oxygen and blood flow means the end of the electrical signals in our brains. And as far as we know, that internal stillness means the end of our consciousness. Maybe we will be pleasantly surprised, or unpleasantly surprised. (laughs) And maybe we don't know what we think we know. But I prefer to be ready for what is most likely. Besides, I have never gotten a definitive answer as to how old you are in an afterlife. If I have to go through middle school again, forget it. (laughs) Even if there may be a sequel, we believe in the importance of life before death. We believe that this life matters. At the same time, 
we need to understand why it is so tempting to seek other lives beyond this one, be they reincarnation, resurrection, or a new ethereal plane. If humanistic Judaism is to meet human needs in secular ways, we must discover what those needs are. Obviously, human beings are afraid to die. We have never experienced a world without us in it. And on some level, we never lose the feeling we had as babies that if we close our eyes, the world disappears. We are afraid to lose the people we love. We are afraid that goodbye at a funeral is really goodbye and not see you soon. We need to make, the sense, we need to make sense of suffering and tragedy. Our brains are hardwired to want justice. That helps our cooperation with each other, but it also means we have trouble accepting the death of a child or undeserved suffering or tragic death without trying to make sense of it somehow. There are so many wrong things that people say after someone dies tragically. They needed one more angel in heaven, like there's a shortage. You'll see them again. Well, not for the rest of my life, and I need to figure out how I'm going to get through that. To make sense of it all, we might even blame the person who died of something far less than a capital offense, if only to make them a little guilty, and thus somehow deserving of their tragedy. And then there are the consequences of facing this life without the promise of another one. Actress Julia Sweeney was raised Catholic, and her monologue, Letting Go of God, describes a gradual drift away from that religious perspective until one day, something just clicked. One striking passage speaks very eloquently to the challenge of believing in this life alone. One day, I was sipping my coffee, walking along a busy shopping area near my house, and I was lost in thought, thinking, so I don't think anything happens to us after we die. Our brain just stops like every other organ, so people just die. And then I thought, wait a minute, so Hitler? Hitler just died? No one sat him down and said, you screwed up, buddy, and now you're going to spend an eternity in hell. Huh. So Hitler just died. And my brother Mike, who suffered unspeakably from cancer, he just died. I always had this idea that Mike's death, while premature, was his divine destiny somehow, and that his spirit didn't really die, but it lived on, not just in the memory of those who knew him, but in this real, tangible sense. And I realized that now I thought he died. He really died, and he was gone forever. And then I realized I had to go back and basically kill off everyone I ever knew who died, who I didn't think really died. And then I thought, oh, so I'm going to die. And then I started thinking about all the happenstances all the random little moves which resulted in me being alive, me in particular, at this moment. Not just of my parents meeting, not even of the billions of sperm against the hundreds of possible eggs. I thought about this randomness multiplying. My parents, their parents, and all the ways it could have gone one way, but it went the way it went. Richard Dawkins wrote, certainly those unborn ghosts include poets greater than Keats, scientists greater than Newton, but in the teeth of these stupefying odds, it is you and I in our ordinariness that are here. We are here. We are alive today, living, breathing reality. We believe in this life, 
And part of believing in this life is accepting the reality of death. But there is so much to do in the meantime. What does believing in this life mean for how we live it? If we believe that this is the only life, we might be less willing to risk it. There are and there have always been atheists in foxholes and on motorcycles. Today, there is even a military association of atheists and freethinkers. And there are certainly causes we might be willing to fight for and to die for. But if death is the end, the real end, then risking our lives means risking our individual conscious existence. And taking another's life obliterates their entire individuality, all their potential tomorrows and remembered yesterdays, wiped out in an instant. Whoever destroys a soul, it is as if he had destroyed an entire world. It can be scary to contemplate that our end might well be the end, and the same for everyone else. Now each of us can take this belief and run with it in different directions. One might use a belief in the uniqueness of this life in favor of or in opposition to the death penalty, aside from concerns about fair application. Is not murder that much more calamitous because of its permanent and irreparable consequences for the victim? Or is legal execution that much more terrible because of its permanence? And as Sweeney said, even Hitler just died. There is no guarantee that the universe will provide any more justice than we are able to. If we believe in this life, we need to make the most of it. And we should help others make the most of theirs. We deeply value our limited experiences. We value our time with the people we love. We cherish our opportunities that much more dearly. To quote the book of Hamilton, we are not giving away our shot. Carpe diem, seize the day, or at least seize the fish if you want any locks at the Rosh Hashanah Oneg. <laughs> Human self-fulfillment, self-actualization, independence, dignity, self-awareness, all the more crucial in the century or less that we have allotted to us. Saving lives or reducing deaths is vitally important. Whoever saves a life, it is as if he saved an entire world. And improving lives, deepening the quality and not just the quantity of life, becomes even more important as we focus our energies on this life. People will disagree over when life begins or what is ethical to do or not to do near the end. Whether we believe that every person is in the divine image or simply in our own image, each person deserves dignity and respect and freedom and life in this life. What if lives are in conflict, or it seems that all lives are not treated equally? Rather than ask which life matters, I am now asking which lives matter. In a direct conflict, self-preservation is entirely reasonable and appropriate. In rabbinic law, and thus in historic Jewish culture, if someone is trying to kill you or to kill someone else, you are justified in killing the rodef, the pursuer. What if you are in a city under siege and the attacking army demands a specific person to spare the city? What do you do? The rabbinic answer is that if they demand someone specific, you are allowed to surrender that person to save everyone else. If they simply demand any person, then you should refuse rather than play God. What if someone threatens your life unless you kill a third person? There the rabbis said that you should submit to death rather than kill an innocent. In a marvelous turn of phrase, they ask, 
Whose blood is redder? How can you decide that your life is worth more than the other person's? One of the most famous of the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not kill. However, the King James Bible was a translation of Hebrew to Latin to English, so something was lost in translation. The Bible is not shy about killing people. We saw on Rosh Hashanah how Korach and his followers are wiped out to crush a rebellion against Moses. The Hebrews are commanded to destroy entire Canaanite cities, and there are many sins punishable by death, from cross-dressing to adultery. A stubborn and rebellious child is to be stoned to death. Well, that one might be handy. <laughs> what the commandment, thou shalt not kill, really says is lo tirzach, do not murder. Jewish laws accepted justified killing from war to judicial execution. What was forbidden was illegal killing. There was even a provision for accidental manslaughter. A man may go into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and as he swings his axe to fell a tree, the axe head may fly off and hit his neighbor and kill him. That man may flee to one of the sanctuary cities and save his life, an accident. As with any laws this old, there are blind spots. Exodus chapter 21, right after the Ten Commandments, says that if a man beats his slave and the slave dies, the owner will be punished but unlike, say, gathering sticks on Shabbat, it does not say the owner will be killed. An eye for an eye and a life for a life, but not if the person killed was not a full person. Evidently, their life mattered, but it mattered less. The awesome, permanent, irreparable action of ending a life was not applied evenly in the ancient world. What if our connections to family, ethnicity, nation are elevated at the expense of others? Hurricane Matthew killed two dozen people in the United States. It killed 1,000 people in Haiti. We have our concentric circles of loyalty, family, community, ethnicity and culture, political nation, and ultimately humanity. There are inevitably times when the circles closer to us take precedence over those further away. No one condemns feeding your own children. But where is the line? In Philip Roth's short story, The Conversion of the Jews, a Hebrew school student keeps getting in trouble. What Ozzie wanted to know was always different. The first time, he had wanted to know how Rabbi Binder could call the Jews the chosen people if the Declaration of Independence claimed all men to be created equal. Rabbi Binder tried to distinguish for him between political equality and spiritual legitimacy but what Ozzy wanted to know, he insisted vehemently, was different. That was the first time his mother had to come to the synagogue. <laughs> then there was the plane crash. 58 people had been killed in a plane crash at LaGuardia. And in studying a casualty list in the newspaper, his mother had discovered among the list of those dead eight Jewish names. His grandmother had nine, but she counted Miller as a Jewish name. <laughs> because of the eight, she said the plane crash was a tragedy. During free discussion time on Wednesday, Ozzie had brought to, brought to Rabbi Binder's attention this matter of some of his relations always picking out the Jewish names. Rabbi Binder had begun to explain cultural unity and some other things when Ozzie stood up at his seat and said that what he wanted to know was different. Rabbi Binder insisted that he sit down, and it, it was then that Ozzie shouted that he wished all 58 were Jews. That was the second time his mother came. 
Why does Ozzy wish all 58 dead were Jews? Because he wanted more Jews to die? No. He wanted their deaths to be mourned the same. Whose blood is redder? We are not only universalists. We also have group loyalties and attachments to our families, to the Jewish people, to our country. It is not evil to note the names like ours on a casualty list or to want the best for our nation. It is not wrong to draw attention to anti-Semitic harassment and hatred of our people for who they are, be it from right-wing nationalists or from left-wing internationalists. We have no trouble saying Jewish lives matter, drawing attention to Jewish genetic diseases, supporting Jewish communities and causes, mourning the loss of our relatives near and far, defending our people against irrational prejudice. It is harder to hear. It is harder to really hear and understand the painful experiences of others. And it might be easier to risk the lives of others than it is to change a situation that has worked out okay for us and ours. If we believe that this life matters, then we should accept that all these lives matter in all their diverse experiences and challenges, black, Jewish, each with their own distinct concerns. Like everything else, we will not agree on everything. In addition to its problematic passage accusing Israel of genocide, I am not an anti-capitalist, as the Movement for Black Lives platform would have me be. But this summer, I saw articles on conservative websites like Red State, National Review, and The Daily Caller, all looking for common ground with the Black Lives Matter movement. The concrete recommendations of Campaign Zero, like independent investigations, better de-escalation training, addressing police union contracts and body cameras are not left or right, black or white, north side or south side issues. A recent study on body cameras in England found that complaints against police were reduced by up to 90%. Both the police and the public behaved better knowing they were on camera and might be accountable. Shades of our Torah reading where fear of shame improved even divine behavior. Just as feminism improved the world for men too, so can addressing the concerns of other groups lift all boats. If the consequence could be the end of this life, destroying an entire world, then we have to do better. Yom Kippur is a time of forgiveness. Ending a life is often described as an unforgivable crime. You are allowed and even encouraged to forgive a wrong done to you, but you cannot forgive a wrong done to someone else on their behalf. This makes atonement and forgiveness that much harder. I have to confront the very person I wronged and do my best to make it right with them, in person, to their face. And they have to see me again and push themselves to accept my apology and find a way to move forward. If you have contributed to the death of someone and did this life for them, they cannot forgive you and you cannot present yourself to them for forgiveness. You can reach out to their family, to their community, but there is nothing you can do to bring them back. They are gone. If we believe that this life matters, how much more important then to reconcile the differences we can and then be able to move forward with the rest of the time that we have left. We are not the first to grapple with the challenge of believing in this life alone. The Greek philosopher Epicurus believed that when we die, the atoms disperse and we are no more. 
He famously wrote that because the end of life is really the end, death is nothing to us, which makes the mortality of life enjoyable, not by adding to life a limitless time, but by taking away the yearning after immortality. For life has no terrors for those who thoroughly understand that there are no terrors in ceasing to live. When we are, death is not come. And when death is come, we are not. An easier version from a modern source, the movie The Shawshank Redemption, Get Busy Living or Get Busy Dying. Believing in this life is not a death sentence. It's not even a life sentence. It is an invitation to live your life and to make it possible for others to live their lives. And we all should live as deeply and as meaningfully as possible. Which life matters? This one. Whose lives matter? Yours and mine, theirs and ours, each of us an entire world to destroy or to save. L'chaim to life. This podcast was produced by Ken Burke on behalf of Rabbi Shalom and Kol Hadash Humanistic Congregation in conjunction with Repatriation Studios. I'm Ken Burke, and thank you for listening.